when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Oh, hello. Welcome to Waypoints. It's Wednesday, and the Waypoint staff and friends are taking a little break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment that's been inspiring us. And let's try to think of a nicer way to say pissed, off, pissed us off lately. Uh, let's say provoking. <laughs> uh, things that have been provoking us, us lately. Yes. Love it. Uh, gathered around the table this Wednesday, we've got Patrick Klepek. Hello. Danielle Randeau. Hi. And Austin Walker. That's me. Hey. So I would say right now to lead us off, it's fair, to, it's fair to characterize the current moment as like a golden age of true crime. If you look at the <laughs> podcasting and documentary spaces right now, you'll find a lot of really popular real-life whodunits, re-examinations of controversial cases. Uh, so with that in mind, Austin, why don't you tell us about the mystery that Serial's third season is serving <laughs> up? The, the mystery is... Um... Uh, why is the criminal justice system how in in how many ways is the criminal justice system broken in a way that primarily harms marginalized folk oh so it's uh, like like institutional murder on the orient express where they right, all done it they, everyone's everyone is complicit you and me too rob that is the uh you know so, so i guess i'll set it up a little bit um for people who who haven't followed serial over the last few years which you know it's one of those things where it's like i actually don't know how deep it's penetrated into our community necessarily for a couple of reasons one it was this big crossover success with a lot of what i think people on twitter uh in our twitter circles would call normies uh it was like a <laughs> big um pivot point for people who came on board to podcasting for the first time who had never listened to podcasts before uh, so i know that a huge part of its listenership is uh, people who, who only just recently came to podcasts and i know a lot of our fans have listened to podcasts for quite some time um uh but also uh, there was a lot of pushback on the first season in spite of its success so the first season followed uh a, a murder case from baltimore uh from from maryland um uh in which a a uh, uh an asian american woman was killed by uh, an Arab American, uh, or was 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 supposedly alleged. killed, allegedly killed. Well, yeah, was allegedly yeah, killed it's... by by uh, an Arab American man. Uh, and the episode to episode, the case, uh, the the team at at Serial, which is a bunch of uh, producers previously at This American Life, like Sarah Koenig, uh, Koenig, 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 I believe, Koenig, Koenig. yeah, um, dug into the case and and introduced you to the to the characters, the 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 suspects. The, the people who were witnesses or adjacent to witnesses, to the complications, to the poor reporting and to the poor defense that was given to the, the primary suspect. Um, and week by week, everyone kind of followed along with the same tenacity and curiosity that you would a prestige TV drama uh, or, or a, a detective novel. Um, and somewhere along the line, I think a lot of folks did come to the realization like oh wait no these are real people 
This is not <laughs> characters in, in the piece of fiction I love. And also, um, it, it is specifically marginalized folks. Like, it is, it is part of what makes that story uh, so filled with complexity is the fact that this is an Asian-American uh, woman, an Asian-American girl who was killed uh, and and that the primary suspect uh, and, and the alleged killer was an Arab-American man and the, the all of the stereotypes and all of the, the uh, prejudices that go into what a case like that looks like uh, in, in the American mind. Um, but it, it ends up feeling at times kind of exploitative. And more than that, and I think this is the part that, that Serial... Uh, that the producers over at Serial have tried to address both in this current season and also in their season two, they realized like, oh, actually, this doesn't say much about anything. Um, and they kind of kick off this new season, which is about a year spent in uh, a single courthouse uh, in in Cleveland, Ohio. Nope. Is that wrong? That's no, it's that's right. I think no, it's right. or maybe it's I outside by Cleveland, the lake, but it's in it is. It is. It is. I, my brain got confused because of a different thing we're going to talk about later. I was like, wait, am I confusing <laughs> yeah, this? We, with another, it's, another, welcome it's to Cleveland. the Ohio themed episode of Waypoints. It really All is. Right. It's super weird. Um, so, so yeah, for a year in a single courthouse uh, in in Cleveland. Um, as a way of saying, like, okay, this is we don't want to look at the exceptional case. We don't want to look at the case where there are so many complications that it's hard to have something have a takeaway about the criminal justice system. Instead, we should look at a bunch of average, ordinary cases that happen in here day by day, week by week. Um, and and what can that tell us about about the the uh, the criminal justice system? I think to some degree that's a return to form for them because the second season, which was about a uh, an army deserter, um, Bo Bergdahl, uh, Bo Bergdahl, Bo yeah, Bo Bergdahl. Uh, was poorly received is what I would say. I think a lot of people found it boring. It didn't have... It wasn't, we- it wasn't uh, like, part of the criticism of the first season that you're alluding to is yeah. about, like, the, ex- the, like, the sexiness of, yes. like, like true crime dramas, and that leads into the, the feelings of exploitation if they're not handled correctly, which is partly tied up in the stylistic way that Serial is done, which is, like, a very conversational, casual style where you feel on the same level as Sarah Koenig and the producers, where it's like, oh, we're all just, like... What's this is weird. Like, there's a certain style <laughs> yes. to it that is part of what makes huh. it appealing and approachable. Yeah. Um, and in the second season, about the intimacy that that she, you know, that she developed with various subjects in in that season. Like, there's definitely she sounds like, like a normal person. Yes. She doesn't sound like a figure of authority. She's just someone that's like done. The, like, you're meeting at the bar with someone and they're laying out some paperwork and they're yeah. like, "I'm gonna explain to you why this is fucked up and we're gonna walk through it." In the second season, like part of what I liked about the second season, I think it's underrated. Me too. Um, yes, it's 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 more boring, but it's boring because it's like. It lives in a gray area where there there are not real answers. It just like is go read up on Bo Bergdahl's you know situation and, and you'll see how quickly it gets complicated when you have time to get into it here. But I I like that part of the second season where you just lived in a mixture of I don't knows. Um, yeah. And then the third season I think takes some of that approach, but like realizes that like there's power in like getting concrete lessons or things you can build on in a way like this. The new season has a structure to it, like that is starting very small and beginning to, it's only two, two episodes it's in, two but episodes you start in. to yeah. see where like the direction they're going to start well, going. It, it also, I think um, it avoids another major problem with that first season. And even with the second one, to some degree, which is you get to the end of that first season of serial and there's no takeaway. It's like, well, d- did Adnan Syed do this or not? And like, well, we were making the show as it was coming out, and like, there wasn't a big break. They didn't crack the case, right? There was not a, the, you know, in a way that actually kind of, I think, hammered home some of those. What you were left with was a bunch of bad feelings, right? You were left with just like, uh, there, a lot of people. It feels like a lot of people got screwed. A lot of people, and did. it's and you're not sure who, and you're you're not. 
And it's fine for things to end messy, yes. but it didn't felt like it end messy with a point. Like the, it wasn't like the messiness was the point. No. It, it just ended they messy because they that. had to like get out and move on to a new story because there was nowhere else to, to go. go with this yeah. particular one. You should actually you should set up like the the first story. There, there's some there, they pick a very specific story on this for the se- first episode for this season. Um, you're saying or for, for this season? season? Yeah. Yes. Yes. So this season, comparatively, because each episode is a story, is about one thing that happens inside of this courthouse. They're able to have like an entire they're able to have resolution. So the first episode of the season uh, is about a bar fight, um, and and you know the the way my that they favorite. said of course you've been in a couple recently. My understanding you've broken I, up. I a call couple. people off of other people in bar fights. That's more of what I do. Or did sorry, you commit felony assault? Right. Oh, no. That well, that's the question, right? So there's a young woman who goes into a bar. The way specifically they, white, specifically like, a young white like woman, the, and they make who, the point that yes. like. There's like a line from the first episode that's like, ah, uh, where they they talk. Anyway, like they, they Being, chose someone the, who's the line. I mean, you mean the line about about well, how whiteness doesn't ever hurt. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. ever hurt. It's like, it's like it, yeah, listen, yeah. it never blackness. helps to be black. It never yes. hurts to be white. Exactly. Yes. 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 It never yes. hurts yes. to be. Yeah, exactly. So um, she walks into this bar. She goes to this bar with her friend. It's not a bar she normally goes to. Uh, it is. It's it's kind of described the way you can hear some people describe like, oh yeah, it's like it's a bar. It's I don't want to say it's like a white trash bar, but it's presented as a sort of like low income, like uh, uh, working class, well white, drinks, you know, you know, 40, 50 year olds who've been around the block, who've been here for 20 years. They're wearing flannel. A, they're wearing flannel and jeans, you know, and denim. That is and, and, and the white woman is sort of presented as like, I don't normally go to bars like this, blah, 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 whatever. Gets into a. a spe- OK, no, that's I completely reduced it. She goes there and. Camera footage shows that uh, a man continues to harass her, uh, to touch her, uh, and she is like, get the fuck away from me. Another woman confronts her, uh, and they get into a fight. It's not 100% clear who threw the first blow or whatever, but it, it breaks out into a, a not just a fight, but what is described as like a pile-on of it's her. It's a beatdown. It's a beatdown. The whole bar. Yeah. Exactly. I'm not even sure you can call it as a brawl. Like it's a, it's an upsetting story because like, and this is this is the what's cr- sort of compelling about this first case. It's easy to imagine yourself being in this woman's position. You're at a yeah. bar that like you look that bar has locals. You are not one of them. You are not yep. one of the regulars. But also the way it escalates, like it's not just a guy like grabs her ass. It is that a guy repeatedly slaps it. She turns around, and confronts the guy multiple times, and mm-hmm. that seems to intensify it. Like, because she's saying, like, what the fuck, man? He's just, he just starts, like, going ham. Just, like, slapping repeatedly now. Like, what are you going to do about it? And that's when these other, like, regulars, these, the, you know, these other women show up and get in this this woman's face. And then it turns into a beatdown uh, of this woman who originally, like, her only, the only thing she did was try to get a drink right. and, and to stop object to from... having her ass grabbed. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It wasn't a brawl. It wasn't like people like, you know, it wasn't she Donnie Brook. A hundred percent. Exactly. It wasn't like her and her crew versus some other crew. Right, she right. was just getting beat. And she fights her way up. A cop shows up. There had been a cop nearby. Is that the, the he situation? He was going to the bathroom. He was, uh, yeah. yeah, he'd come down right. the block. Okay. And he's like, oh shit, there's this fight. Try Gets into the middle of it. And in the process, she's throwing fists. She's back up on her feet and hits him. Um, 
It is not ever made clear in the episode if that's a swing at him or if it's a swing in general. I know where my suspicion lies. Mm-hmm. Um, but he puts her in the back of the car and says, listen, I have to I have to arrest you. I have to bring you. I have to put you in this car. I have to put you in cuffs. You assaulted a police officer. Uh, at that point, things get really messy because he. And he specifically says, yes. I have no intention to charge you. I'm yes. not like and tells the other bar t- people in the bar like this is this is just a protocol. She's just got it. This is the thing that happens when a police officer gets hits. I I don't want this to escalate. Well, like which is wild because the bar the bar patrons at this point are like don't arrest her. What are you doing? Don't arrest her. Like motherfucker, you were hitting her. You were kicking her on the ground a second ago, lady. Like what are you talking about? Um, but then the, the the real drama of it ends up unfolding at the courthouse because of course she does get charged, and immediately you start to see the gears of the justice system fail to to mesh right the teeth of the of the gears not quite lining up because information changes via communication and suddenly it looks like a really good case that they they could pursue and uh and of course if you're if you're in court in 2018 the the system expects you to plea out and to take whatever you know kind offer they give you uh and she she's wound up with it with an attorney a defense attorney that is confident that this is that he can actually win this case which is not a thing that happens Ever like the numbers that come up in this show in terms of like how many cases get ple- get get pleaded out. Um, also, for years I'd said pled out, but then listening to the show, it's always pleaded, and I looked online, it's pleaded, and I don't know where the fuck <laughs> I, I started saying it is pleaded. It is yeah. pleaded. I don't know where what I was doing. Anyway, it's like ninety eight percent get get uh, their plea deals to go to trial, and those two percent aren't all fucking uh, you know not not guilty. And, and the plea deals verdicts. are like misdemeanors, which is right. And as the show like does a good job explaining like. Where everyone looks at that as a win, like this person, like cool, like the system. They say the system worked, right? And then they ex- like Sarah Koenig explains like what a misdemeanor means, the cost that is, especially for low income people. Yes. and it's just like, like, oh, like this is not a win at all for totally. someone who was truly like seemed truly innocent. And that, that is the rest of that. The rest of that episode is hey, her her uh, her defense attorney is just trying to make it happen and try to get you know trying to get the the. Uh, the court to drop the charges or to declare, you know, to, to basically uh, do more than just uh, reduce it to a misdemeanor. Um, because at this point, it's a felony because she she hit this cop and they've decided it's a felony assault. Um, and it's the it's this like really weird bureaucratic nightmare of uh, being in meetings with people who you know rapport with uh, and who have their own supervisors, who have their own goals and stuff like that. Um, and then, yeah, the, the the end cost of it all is like, okay, well, this woman had to go to court for every day for 30 days and does not live near the courthouse. And, you know, maybe she doesn't have money for – to imagine like every day for 30 days straight you have to go to the courthouse to check in for something, right? Jesus. Like that is not nothing um, uh, on top of lawyer fees and fees that make no sense. There was, there was some fee in there. There's like a list of – like, you know, the park fee, the judge's fee, the bailiff's fee, like all sorts of stuff that are eventually it's like, like going to Ticketmaster. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's 100 percent like that, except it's also, you know, you were innocent. You know that what happened yeah. was you got jumped at the fucking bar. Um, and and that first episode is just a really great uh, example of. And, and this is the thing that, that is so good is like, oh, and this is what this is considered success in the system. She got it knocked down from a felony to a misdemeanor. She didn't have to do time, like besides the four days over the, you know, between when she was first booked and then and then made bond or whatever. Still spent four days in jail, which in is a, a shitty lot. jail. Yeah, I mean, mo- yeah. all jail is shitty, but like this one was like the Cleveland one is described as like a particularly heinous place and, and gross place to end up. Right, and so then that's the first episode. Second episode digs into a specific judge and like the ways in which his court 
are his petty kingdom. Are his, you know he is Ugh. he you know completely runs that place and it delivers fucking you know uh, lectures on on fatherhood to the black guys who pass through the oh, the Jesus system Christ. and 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 uh, uh, uses all sorts of slang and vernacular Dude, that bro. he should not be using and that he in conversation justifies as well this is how i connect with the people that come through my courtroom and, yet and it's like he does not use it with the black uh producer no. of the show interesting weird huh. yeah oh wow. hmm. yeah who, who speaks with a british accent by the way which is yeah. a whole other story anyway um it's it is such a step forward i think for the show because it, it's trying to dig at something i still think there are missteps um you know i, I think there are lots of presumptions about who's listening that probably reflect statistically but would still be better off if they were a little more inclusive. You know, there are, there are moments where Sarah is like, um, you know, if it was your record or my record, the difference uh, wouldn't matter between a, you know, a, a, this misdemeanor level and this misdemeanor level or whatever. Or, um, you know, there's a, there's a bit in which um, she talks about, to be clear, I want to clarify why I think that that is like presumptive. It's like, you don't know what my record is. You, like, I, there are people listening to us right now who I know have felony records, right? Like, that is a thing that happens in America. That's the point of this season is that you can wind up with a record even though you're innocent uh, or you can wind up with a record because that's how life is. And sometimes you, you do stupid shit and you do shit that you regret and you do – you crimes happen. Uh, that doesn't mean that you're not going to listen to a podcast eventually, right? Um, and so like they think there is a very much still a very presumed white middle class you know, listening audience here that, that kind of seeps its way into the perspective of the show. Um, I also think that comes up – there's a bit in which in – which they uh, they start talking about that judge who was the petty the, the kind of petty tyrant who uh, wants to improve the lives of people and the show describes him as being an optimist right as being like he thinks his work can help the community and and they they say like the rest of that episode is like he isn't actually helping the community or here are the ways in which he's bad uh, the the thing that the, the, the show should take is like it doesn't matter if he's an optimist or not it shouldn't matter if he wants to, to help the community or not and they don't actually make that part of the argument they they just they like continue to paint him throughout that as like a misguided tyrant instead of someone who is just fundamentally harmful and, and corrupt and it's easier to do that when like I think partially it's about access and about like having that relationship. He's a great interview. He's a fantastic interview. Um, uh, and, and they do a good job of showing the ways in which he gains control over people's lives, the ways in which the system by, by giving people probation instead of actually jail time, he's able to stay in their lives in different ways. Um, but there was just like, there is still that presumptive who, who is making this and who is this for? Um, still, I think it's, a great first step for this season. I'm excited to see the rest of it. Uh, I'm excited for people who have that platform to be using it in this way. Yeah. It, I, the show could be, it leaves too much for you to read into what's happening when right. I think it should be a little more explicit about what's happening. I think it's gotten better. It's better at that. Like this season is, but because of like what they're treading in, which yeah. is like the criminal justice system, like people just know so little about, even someone that like tr tries to pay attention, tries to read up on it, like there are still so many things about this that are illuminating. So it's like, all right, if if someone like me still needs like, don't let me just read into the text. I need you to explain it and like break this down. Like I, I hope the show like doesn't lose that as it goes forward. But I, I it is a fascinating, really fascinating series so far, um, and I, I, yeah, I'm really enjoying it as well. Danielle, looks like you had some thoughts as we were sort of discussing just the. Uh... What happens inside a courthouse? 
Well, yeah, I, I used to go to court all the time when I worked at the ACLU. I would just oh, right. record cases and things like that. And my dad's a lawyer, so there are many times in my life I've sort of watched my dad argue a case. Uh, so, oh boy, I just have so many thoughts and feelings about the American criminal justice <laughs> system that probably can't completely fit here. Uh, but yeah, it is really, really... One aspect of it that uh, my old executive director at the ACLU in Boston used to talk about is just how much it's 85% theater uh, and absolutely, utterly has nothing to do with the truth of the case or the facts of the case or anything like that. She used to describe particular courthouses in Boston and specific rooms and knowing you would know who a new lawyer was or an old hand at this with the exact spot they stood in because they knew exactly like basically the staging of it like the acoustics are perfect in this spot to really hammer home your point so when you were gonna you know do your your uh, closing arguments you would stand in this spot and you would dramatically you know sort of reach over and and, and uh, gesture towards the jury uh it's just really really uh, it's so frustrating. It's fascinating in so many ways, but so frustrating how much of court is just theater and it is just playing to the politics of that particular room, that right. particular judge, that particular jury, all of it. Uh, Daniel, did you listen through the second episode? I have actually never listened to any serial. Okay, so you, I would wild, be, but... because of the specific point you're making, yep. there is a, I don't want to spoil it, I guess, sure, but sure. like there's a moment involving a letter. Um, okay. involving a, a um, someone in the system and like the letter is like very fawning to this judge very deferential a very like you've been a positive figure in my life you're you're helping me like you're you're like thank you so much for like being you know tough love sort of thing like I, I've, I've found a new path forward um, and it's just a really striking moment because as you're listening to this part play out you know I'm listening to this and going like Man, this motherfucker's playing some good politics. Like, he is playing <laughs> to the ego of this judge. And then it cuts to, like, the judge, like, tearing up as he's reading it privately in his chambers. And then some shit happens. It's not great. And at the end, like, they ask um, the kid, like, why I wrote the letter. It's like, I was just flattering that motherfucker. Like, I thought this was my path out of here. And it was just amazing to watch it work. And it, like, that was actually awesome. Like one of those moments where like, I wish the show was more explicit about explaining like yeah. what happened there because yeah. like, it's implicit that like, Oh, he was just taking this judge for a ride and like playing to his ego, but they let the guy off the hook a little too much in terms of like explaining out exactly like the series of events that occurred there. But it is 100% like if you listen to nothing else, Danielle, listen to the second episode and that bit, because <laughs> it is, it is absolutely what you are describing. It is politics and theater in just to such a frustrating degree that um, I think part of what's great about this 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 season so far is that like if this is what's happening in like normal cases that we take for granted then you start your head starts scratching at well what's happening in these like far more complicated cases which i imagine the series will go into um but it's like if it can't get basic shit right right like lord help the stuff where there's actually a gray area yeah yes. yeah I, I think something that this is my first uh experience listening to serial as well i missed the first two seasons uh something i really enjoyed in the first episode, at least, is this idea of like the system as a place and a community. Yeah. Uh, to, like, mm -hmm. to, it was very much like that first episode in particular is also about that stuff you're talking about, Danielle, where it's like there's a politics beyond just the case in front of you. It's like, how's the bailiff going to feel about you? How are they uh -huh. the process? Like, everybody's going to have to face each other tomorrow, and there's going to be favors owed and favors collected, and like, there's that other game being played. And so, yeah, you advocate for your client. But also, you live here. Client's going to leave. The case is going to end. But, like, all the players going to be here tomorrow doing it again. 
And I think that's something this series is doing a really effective job of bringing out and how that changes the way the criminal justice system works and sort of tweaks it away from the ideal, which is like the pure adversarial advocacy model. Right. Uh, there's a, like an architectural model here uh, that, that they set up really nicely um, right away, which is like you can there is literally a, a vertical hierarchy in this building. It's like, you know, the people who are being booked are coming in through the basement with beat cops. You know, a level above that are clerks. A level above that are detectives. And then like three you know floors, three, four and five are various judges with three being the kind of like um, the the, you know, whatever misdemeanor courts and and, you know, personal finances and all that stuff family court family court exactly exactly uh and it is it is that that's really effective and i think it's in episode two she she also breaks down like all right well, like this is primarily a black and white uh courthouse and black folks are security guards and they work reception um, and they are clerks, but not ever, you know, lawyers. And they are, uh, you know, judges are primarily white, bailiffs are primarily white, detectives are primarily white. Like it's a super interesting uh, uh, breakdown of the demographics of the courthouse, in which you can see the same power dynamics functioning, uh, both architecturally and across the the makeup of the of the the actual people who work there day in day out. So I think. Um... You know, and that, so you can you can find that really easily on pretty much any podcast platform. <laughs> yes. Uh, so serial, yes. very serial popular, need our easy promo. to find. Yeah, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, just very easy to find. Uh, but speaking of like uh, bureaucracies and institutions and the people who live and or don't live within them, uh, my waypoint this week is Akira Kurosawa's nineteen fifty two film uh, Ikaru, which is. A movie I'd put off watching because it sounds depressing as hell. So when I give you the pitch, you're going to be like, boy, that sounds fucking bleak. And it's a little bleak, but not all the way. Uh, so Ikaru is about a bureaucrat, the sort of person who inhabits the bowels of these massive government institutions. Uh, and the guy's name is uh, Kanji Watanabe. He's played by Takashi Shimura, who does a fantastic job in this role. And... In the opening, like, we know from the start something this guy doesn't, which is that he's got, like, terminal stomach cancer. Yeah. And by the end of, like, the first 20 minutes, he's going to learn that he has this illness. And he's going to have this crisis of, what the fuck have I done with my life? Like, really, what is the point of this? Like, it's established at the start. He is one of those paper-pushing bureaucrats whose primary function is to put people's hopes, dreams, and aspirations into a circular file and just, like, send it off into the system where nothing's ever going to happen except they get older. Um, and so he comes to this realization of, like, I've got three to six months left with my life, and I've been dead, basically, for years. That's how he feels. Like, he's just wasted, the, wasted everything. And so the film kind of has this... Um, like bifurcated structure. The first half of the film is him desperately trying to learn, like, what's the secret? Like, how do you live? And he goes on this sort of journey uh, trying to figure out what does it look like to take advantage of life? He starts out by going out with this um, sort of itinerant poet uh, on Night on the Town, which is a fantastic sequence because it's this really... I had no picture in my head of what, like, post-war Japan looked like. And so it's also just fascinating as an artifact of, like, uh, Japanese nightlife 
in the wake of World War II, mm-hmm. and there's all this like uh, dynamism. Like it's it's a really cool sequence, and uh, you know really gives you a glimpse at uh, a setting you you might not have seen much of. The second half of the film is the dude's wake. Like he's just like just like boom. It would like one minute he's like I've got it. I'm going yeah. to live. Cut and the to. next cut is his wake. His it's like his picture. photo at the yeah. front of the shrine at his wake. It's great. Um, yeah, and I got it like the shot that edit that moment, the moment where he has his realization I'm like I'm going to do something before I'm done. He's at this restaurant where in the background there's been these people having this party this entire time and like a you oh, know guests have been coming to the table fuck. and as he stands up this this group that's been established from the start of the scene is having this little party over there there's like a begins cake that singing. shows up at one point yeah. there's like right. you, know, you just get these little moments of like he's having a very in the foreground he's having a really intense conversation right and then the background they're like oh the cake is here and like oh everyone <laughs> has like great dresses and you're like okay i guess there's a party in the background what the fuck ever and then <laughs> St- yeah, he stands up, and it's like it's almost like the Spike Lee shot of like you are yeah. looking. It's the tracking shot, uh, like facing up and at his face as he moves to this restaurant, and the party in the background strike up "Happy Birthday to You," and and it's a surprise party. Someone shows up and is like, oh. "This woman showed." I just watched this last night, so it's like super fresh. This woman shows up in her like little black dress and like is like oh and they start singing happy birthday to you as this guy who has literally wasted 30 years of his life is dying of stomach cancer and has finally realized that what he wants to do is try to bring joy to someone in the world before he dies uh is like it finally dawns on him it's just this perfect filmmaking moment it's unbelievable it's like you'll you'll watch it and you'll like leap out of your seat like almost like wanting to applaud it's it's that it's that must have triumph of editing acting shot composition it's great um, but then the second half of this film is like, what if Rashomon, yes. but yes. a luncheon between bureaucrats trying to figure out like, hey, why did this guy start doing shit? Like, why did he care? <laughs> like, that's what they're like. The reason his his wake is well attended is because at the start, this, this is very Parks and Rec. The very first shot of the film is this group of women from like kind of a uh, like a bit of a recovering slum neighborhood. Um Basically saying like, hey, there's open, there's a sewage pit in our goddamn street. Like our kids are getting sick. It's it smells awful. What can you do about this? And everyone's like, not my problem. That belongs to other departments, and nobody will fix it. That's like a sequence. We get the sequence shots of like they go to this guy who's public services or whatever, and he's like, oh, that's not public services. That's public works. And then that goes from public works. Like, oh, that's not public works. That's sewage. It's, it's like five yeah. minutes long. It's, like it's 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 a really it's long really, scene. It's that a is really like long scene. Grows in 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 humor as it goes along. Yes, it's great. It's, it's like by the end of it, it's the deputy mayor, and he's like, eh, it couldn't be me. Like, hey, what are you even <laughs> you doing? Should go back life? to the complaints department where all exactly. this started. Uh, so this wake though, they're trying to figure out. Like, basically, you learn the guy fixed it. Like before he died, he he created he he filled in he filled in the pit and built a park. Yeah, um, and everyone is like, it's it's become news. He's become a local hero to that community, and everyone's trying to figure out like why did he like how did he make this happen and why like why did this guy who was a non-entity change everything about the way he went about his job lately? Did he know he was dying? Because. Um, he kept the secret, so everyone thinks his death is a shock to everyone. But they're starting to wonder, like, why did everything change for this guy? And 
it's interesting because it turns into I don't know, uh it's 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 a funny sequence because they're such like stereotypical bureaucrats. Uh-huh. Um but it also becomes an increasingly like it is comedic, but it becomes deeply moving. I thought Austin it seemed like you had some strong reactions to it while you were uh, watching it. I live. got some notes. I got some notes here. Um, Ayo, fuck the deputy mayor. Ayo, fuck <laughs> all these guys. Uh, I love watching these assholes being forced to confront raw empathy and connection. And then I have a quote here, which is: "There's one point where this guy says, if I had to say what happened, well, it was a coincidence that the park got built.' And it's just like the there is." such a deep hate in my heart for people who are in a system who sign up to be in part of a system that's supposed to make a lot of people's lives better. And then who effectively retreat from that responsibility um, and say like, no, actually I need to X, Y, Z. Like, actually I just need to collect my check and put my head down. And the, the last half of this movie is, or I guess like the final hour of this movie, it's, it's a long, it's a long movie. Um, <laughs> Are a bunch of people kind of juking responsibility, trying to give uh, credit where none is due to people where none is due, and to give no credit where it is due. Um, and it is, for me, it's fascinating because I, I, I'm I left the movie kind of torn last night. I've slept on it since, but unsure whether or not it was cynical about the role of government or if it was if it was optimistic fundamentally, right? Because on one hand. This is a movie that opens with a statement like, before that, he had some life in him. He even tried to do a little real work. But there's nothing left of that will or passion. They've been completely worn down by the minutia of the bureaucratic machine and meaningless busyness it breeds. So it's like deeply skeptical of government bureaucracy as an institution, of having all of these departments that interface with each other that allow us sort of passing the buck, that allow us sort of disengagement with with the actual community. But there's also this, this sequence where... One of the ways in which he kind of explores what is life is that he ends up becoming kind of creepily fond of a former co-worker, this young woman. You know, he's he's in his 60s or 70s or something, yeah. right? Um, maybe, maybe maybe 50s or 60s. Uh, and, and she's in her 20s. Uh, and she's kind of given her letter of resignation. And in the day that she's done that, they've kind of kicked off a very strange friendship. Um, and there's a moment in which he realizes that her stockings have holes in them. Um, and he ends up buying her a new pair of stockings, and, like taking her shopping for expensive Western style stockings and socks. And she's like, do the whole like, why did you do this? Do the holes in my stockings make your feet cold? And the, the, I think the film's answer is like, yeah, of course they do. Yes. Like we have a responsibility when we see someone with fucking holes in their socks to give them to help get them on their feet and get new socks. Right. Like that is part of what. The, the moral of the story certainly is. And I think, uh, you know, ha- having slept on it, I think it's just a, I have a much more naive thing. I don't think it's like a libertarian film. I don't think it's a film that's like, and then destroyed government. It, it is a very naive and a very hopeful, like, no, just do better at your jobs. Like, take a, an ounce of the passion and dedication that Watanabe had into your role in life and fucking put the past in the past like and go forward um which in a post-war period of japan specifically is a very specific sort of message at least that's what i'm reading into it you know patrick did you uh you, so it sounds like you you did you ended up watching this what did, what did you uh I, I watched like the first uh 30 minutes or so um and and like did some reading on it like i uh, i was fascinated about how the film was marketed in the u.s oh um, which how was, was it? how was it <laughs> which is to say it wasn't oh, yeah, they okay. put, so there's a well in the way they did um it was actually like a complete they weren't 
I guess clear how to market it. So there's a there's a scene in the film where um, he's trying to figure out you know what's the secret to life, and he goes to a strip club, right? And uh, the American poster, and you should go look it up because um, like this is a very like thoughtful film about like life, love, like the the pursuit of happiness. Like what is happiness? How do you define that for yourself? And you know what you do among others. And the poster is like. From the acclaimed director, like must see, and it's just a, it's just an outline of a stripper, and it says, uh, and then it has the title of the of the film, um, which I, for, I forget what they doomed, I think is what they called it uh, in the. <laughs> it's the, the US. opposite. Ikuru means uh, to live. To live. So it's like wow. literally um, the opposite. Wow. And, and so the movie like it didn't do particularly well, um, and uh, it was just like a very curious, cynical, shitty way to market a film that is like yeah. the opposite of like the themes. Um, and yeah, uh, yeah, it's uh, it was bizarre. Um, but I, I, I'm, I actually don't. I, it made me curious to go back and see how like Kurosawa's movies, just like more generally, were marketed to Western audiences. Because although he is held up in very high regard, like I don't know how much of the average moviegoer like understands how much of an influence like his work has right. actually had. Like you know, like like Star Wars doesn't exist like sure. without Kurosawa. Like a lot of Spielberg stuff doesn't exist without Kurosawa. Um, I, I, his his legacy is something that I think is like often forgotten in modern cinema, even though like so much of it is defined by like a lot of the work that he did. Well, and certainly movies like this, like the movies that everyone uses reference points for Kurosawa are like the samurai films. Yeah, um, right. Yojimbo and, and, and Seven Samurai and Rashomon. Yeah, and, Ron, and like yeah. Ron is a late career one. I love uh, Ron. Don't which, get me wrong. Yeah. But um, like a lot of his body work is these sort of modern dramas. And there's, such. There's a lot of film noir in Kurosawa's yeah. um, mm-hmm. um, uh, oeuvre. Like, uh, Stray Dog is a fantastic crime drama that people should watch. Um, and especially, my one of my favorite, I think my favorite Kurosawa film is High and Low, which, if you are interested in post-war Japan, the image of nightlife in Japan, the class stratification uh, in post-war Japan, High and Low, um, which is, in Japan, it's Tengoku to Jigoku, which is literally heaven and hell. Um, uh, is fantastic. It's an adaptation of King's Ransom, which is like an Ed McBain procedural cop book, um, like American. Um, it's an adaptation. I love it's, Ed it's McBain. A, it, well, you should you should absolutely watch high like Rob. High and Low is your fucking movie um, <laughs> because it is about an executive, uh, like a wealthy uh, executive who's like I think I think he makes like pants or like it's a clothing executive um, makes um, uh, has has his son kidnapped. I think it's his son. Um, and it is. Oh, uh, right. No, a friend of mine just told me about this movie. Okay, right, it's good. like a comic yes. caper almost. Yeah, it's, well, right, totally. Like, well, like it's like darkly comic. There's lots of comedy in it. In that. Uh, in in again in the bureaucracy of the policing, um, but there is also just like a real heart to the center of the film because you get kind of closer to the world in which the kidnapper moves in than simply staying in the perspective of the of, of Kingo, who is the the, the king in King's Ransom, right? Is the is the uh, the executive, um, and it's it's definitely worth giving that a watch I, I it's it's beautiful um like a lot of kurosawa's work is um and it it there is something about this era of film which is just like people in a room talking is fun to watch and it does that really well so two things one as it happened like i ended up watching this movie 
basically a week or so after I was definitively cleared of having anything stomach cancer shaped going on with me. Like, Glad literally, to I turned that. to my partner in the middle of that movie, <laughs> and I was like... That would have been a bad twist halfway through this podcast. Yeah, yeah like, I, yeah. I turned to my partner, like, halfway through the movie, and I was like, well, this would have been a shitty thing to watch, like, two weeks ago. Yeah. Because, <laughs> like, as they're, as they're giving him the whole, like... The, the, there's this great joke at the start of this movie. This guy's like, look, they're not going to tell you if you're dying of stomach cancer. Here's what they're going to say. And he begins describing, like, you know, just watch what you eat. Don't irritate your, don't irritate your ulcer. Uh, but just don't worry about it too much. And I'm like, oh, they've uh, told me that lately. Like, uh, so, like, it was definitely a weird timing uh, watching this. But the other thing is that... Uh, this movie, it's interesting. Like, the thing I'm still mulling over about this movie, and I don't think the movie, like like you said, Austin, is it, you know, what's the movie's ultimate message? Is it cynical about government? Is it hopeful? I think it's similar about, like, how we spend our lives. Like, the movie ends on both a hopeful and a downbeat note. Oh, it's brutal. Like, on the one hand, the example this guy sets at the end of his life kind of does inspire the people around him to be like, shit, like, we are wasting our opportunities to help each other. We are wasting our opportunities to like, you know, have our spirit move forth in the world and like, you know, be in the world. Uh, but the movie also ends with this sort of acknowledgement that those moments of realization don't last. They didn't like this guy. This guy knew he was dying for three months. That was his gift was that he knew like, Oh, my life is finite. And this is, these are the last you know months I have. And, I think the movies, I couldn't figure out what the movie intends to say here, and I think maybe it's open, but this is what I'm still mulling over. Is the movie's position that fundamentally it's tragic that none of us have any idea, you know, about the preciousness of our own lives or health, all that stuff that we all take it for granted? Or is the movie more compassionate and understanding about it that, look, it is also in the human condition, is also the human nature to take this for granted? To to you know waste time yeah. and Dwell not be acutely aware yeah. of your mortality. Yeah, like the the writings I read, you know, like the essays I read about the movie and like the the first thirty or forty minutes I I read or watched of it, it seemed more observational and critical, less that it came away with like a specific message right. about like I don't think there's a call to action by the movie. It's more just like reading on Kurosawa and like the films he was making of that era and the, like the the motivation behind making this film. Like the original genesis of the idea of the film was that he he wanted to make a, a movie about just someone learning that they're going to die and then what happens after you find that out. Um, and so it and he it seems like a lot of his work or some of his work was like deeply critical of like the institutional structures of like Japanese society. And this just fe- feels like him like turning the lens to bureaucracy in a way that. Um, you know, there, there are ways that, like, a show like Parks and Rec does it that is both, like, a commentary on bureaucracy, um, but, like, this does it, like, in a much, like, more sober, like, measured way that, like, feels actually more in line with, like, even our own in- interactions with bureaucracy. I mean, like, the moment early in the film when the the group of women get so fed up with going around and they just fucking lose their mind. They just snap. Like, they just start screaming at the person who's in front of them who... Is just one person in a very long line of people kicking the can. And that person may be kicking the can in like a genuine way where they they, they are 
trying to tell them, like, but you just don't know. Yeah. I think we've all been in positions of, like, interacting with bureaucratic structures where you do get that runaround, and you get to that person where you finally just sort of, like, you lose, you just lose it, like, and you, that person doesn't necessarily deserve it, but just because of the way the structure that they're put into, like, you have no one else to unload on except for this person. And that, I, that moment in particular, but, like, I felt you could feel the rage of those women because uh, I think we've all been in situations where we just like, don't know what else to do except just sort of scream at the structure that's in front of us. Totally. I, I, I'll say that like the one thing on this that I think that there's a one moment where the film does kind of answer your question there, Rob of like, uh, is this about going out and, and doing something or is this about, so there's this moment towards the end where, the bureaucrats at the wake are just making excuses for themselves effectively. Like, well, we couldn't do this because of blah or, or, Oh, this only happened because there was the group of gangsters who wanted to put a red light district in and the park is better than the red light. (laughs) Blah blah. Like there's all sorts of stuff like that. Right. There's all sorts of just like excuse making, uh, and, 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 and such. And at one point they finally drill down. They're like, Oh, he had cancer and he knew he had cancer. Ah, I see. He knew he had cancer. That's why he did it. Well, you know, of course, if we had cancer, we would if I if I woke up tomorrow and I had cancer, I would also spend the next six months doggedly pursuing my dreams. Of course, of course. And there's this one dude there, the guy who's kind of been the most sober downer, like truthful person there. And he's just like, we could all die today. Like any of us, (laughs) we all have cancer, right? Like it's just. Some of us are going to die in 30 years and some of us are going to get hit by a bus tomorrow. We're all dying. Uh, and and um, from there, that is the moment where, like, it descends into a sort of shouting, talking match. Like, people are just yelling at each other. Like, they're overcome first by silence and then by determination and then by confusion. And I think that there is there is something there that is, like, Kurosawa is, is bringing to mind the confusion and the both the energy and also the the kind of debilitating effect that recognizing one's mortality has in general um and does i think it is an open-ended question it's like well what are you gonna fucking do with it we all any of us could die today what are you doing with your life ahead of that um which is a a kind of a a well-made point in media and culture (laughs) uh right like live every day of your life to your fullest etc but i think it's a it's particularly well made here and also that, like, rhetoric and action are different yes, things. Right? Yes. Like, it seems like the arc of this film is, like, people learning, like, saying they've learned a lesson and they're going to do something about it. Like, I think this is notable for our own, like, political moment, right? Like, it's there's it's the difference between going on Twitter and saying, like, fuck Trump, and it's, like, the and going out and, like, advocating for a local political candidate and knocking yep. on doors, like, or doing some other form of actual, actionable impact. And, like, the I, I think the movie, in some ways, is cynical that most people aren't going to do anything with their lives. They may tell you that they're going to do something or they're going to make a change, but that by and large, most people are going to rest on their laurels and rhetorically will find some way to justify whatever they did because actually in life, it is super easy to find. Like life presents all sorts of reasons to to not not do do something. There is an implicit and and partially explicit argument here that I almost wish that they had come out and said, just like in Serial, like a little more clearly, which is... (laughs) Yeah, Kurosawa. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're the, the Sarah Koenig, uh, Koenig of his day. Um, the, uh, there is there, in the in the the excuse making portion of the wake. We're like, oh, but this only happened because X, because because Y, because Z. 
partially that's all right. Like you said, Patrick, sometimes people have a reason to pass the buck. There are, is a regulation in place. There is a an order to things that you have to not step on toes. Or you, you've been told, don't do this without proper authorization or without this, you know, go ahead or whatever. We work at a major corporation. We know what that is like. I know very yeah, well what it is like. There are walls around you that you can't always explain or justify. You lawyers stop us from doing X. But sometimes it's not even that. Sometimes it's like, well, I've already made three requests of this person, and making the fourth one would seem like da da da. Like there, it is. It is hard to work inside of organizations. Um, but one of the things that's that's underlying all of it is like, yes, it helped that X. Yes, you know, this person did sign off. But at the center of it, there's this divide between actions that contributed to it happening and actions that were necessary for it to even get to those contributions to begin with. The sort of person who, the, the character of, of Watanabe is someone who pushes it forward, puts it in front of people and demands that something happen. And as important are the, the women from the neighborhood who go to office after office after office well before he did and did the same routine and then did it again once they had him on board. And it's like, those are the people to be, right? Even if you're not the bureaucrat, you can be the neighborhood who forces the, the, the government to pay attention, right? And this is why, like, you know, when people go to town halls and when people demand things in public from their representatives and say, hey, what the f- like, why are you why are you cool with there being, you know, kids in cages? Like, I'm I'm fairly or, or firmly of the mind that that is doing your duty as a citizen. Uh, so if there is an example to take from Ikaru, that is the one that I, I would like to. So <clears throat> what I hope you're going to do with your precious time <laughs> is hang tight and listen to this ad. God damn it! <laughs> you know what makes that. you know what makes life worth living? Delicious low calorie lemonade, baby. <laughs> <laughs> it's especially funny for the people who get that programmatic ad. <laughs> a lot of you won't. <laughs> a lot of you won't. Who knows? It turns out advertising is like bureaucracy. <laughs> Oh. Hey, why do we have Waypoint? Why do we keep getting these ads? Well, we can't control that. I Sorry. can't. Listen, I can send an email. <laughs> oh, no. We didn't to... knock on enough doors. I didn't. That's what it was. Which is true. Which is true to some degree, right? Like, you fight the fights that you can fight in your hours at work. Like, I'm sure that if I was like, no, we're getting off of programmatic ads. I don't care what content goes on the website for the next six months. My one goal is we're getting rid of programmatic ads. I could probably make it happen or lose my job. <laughs> <laughs> But I wouldn't get anything else done. I hope you don't want to see an end of the year spread. I hope you don't want reviews for any games ever. Um, prioritize. Anyway, I'm sorry for interrupting this ad. Here's a good ad. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. I mean, I hope that was a good ad. Uh, who can uh, say? <laughs> I hope the volume levels were in line with ours. 
impossible to oh, fingers impossible because fingers crossed. by a computer. Knows. Nobody knows. I really hope it wasn't like a recruiting ad for some sort of like European nativist party. Uh, anyway, please let us know. Which is a thing that has happened. <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway. Yep. Uh, speaking of uh, scary things and mm-hmm. uh, existential dread, uh, Danielle, you got back from a family trip to Orlando where you partook in a spooky family tradition. Ooh. Yes, it was terrifying. Actually, it's very funny uh, to, to, <laughs> to tie this into other things and other uh, hilarious, weird uh, happenings in life. Uh, I went to Halloween Horror Nights, which I will explain in, in depth in two seconds. I'm so jealous. I, it's really good. Uh, but last year, when I was at Halloween Horror Nights, I had just learned that my father had a, a brain tumor. And so we were sort of like going through these haunted houses and things, uh, thinking like, well, I sure hope we get to do this again next year, because, yeah, mm, that was, like, literally what we were thinking. So this year, I went to Halloween Horror Nights, and it wasn't scary for that oh, reason, cool. which was very good. There was a happy ending uh, to that one as well. So, Universal Studios, like many theme parks, like many amusement parks, does a Halloween season event. Uh, it goes from mid-September through the very beginning of November, it's called Halloween Horror Nights. They have it at Hollywood and Orlando. I've been to both. More often than not, I go to the Orlando version of it. And what they do is they actually convert a bunch of buildings. I think there were like 12 this time, something along those lines, uh, into really, truly elaborate, uh, very, very high production values, haunted houses where you walk through and there are people in costumes, there are set pieces, there's bits of lighting, there's bits of staging, there's all this stuff. Uh, very, Basically like a very high-end haunted house. So it's cheesy still, but very, 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 very slickly produced. And there's also things called scare zones. And those are outdoor areas where there are a bunch of scare actors in costume. Uh, also some set pieces, also some bits of sort of interesting and cool lighting. Uh, those are a little bit more freeform because you can walk through uh, sort of at, at any you know, there's no set path through those. Those are just areas of the park where there's scare actors and set pieces and people are going to kind of try to jump out at you and, and make you scream, but it's a little bit more freeform. So that's the like general structure of the event. You go from like 6 p.m. It's open till like 2 a.m. You go to as many houses as you want to. You go to as many scare zones as you want to. Some of the rides are also still open. It's really fun and I highly recommend it to fans of anything goofy first and foremost and also anything horror did, uh, did so, i see they're doing a stranger yeah. things one now too did was that yes, open did you see only house it? i didn't get to mm. <laughs> it's probably got the longest line but it's it got a lot like of fairy four lines hour wait it. jesus wait, yeah, when I mean, did you start yeah, when did you start doing this danielle how does this become a family tradition i mean i'm jealous because what i want to know is how do i turn this into my family tradition <laughs> absolutely well you know they do have like babysitters so like you could totally go wait really I mean, like, in the hotel, you oh, can totally yeah. get a babysitter while you're there, uh-huh. go with your wife and enjoy the haunted houses, Here's and then turning. bring her Here's during the day, you know, for the, the you know, child-appropriate stuff, basically. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, this is a plan you could do, perhaps, someday in the future. Uh, but yeah, it's a family tradition. We've been doing it for a few years now. We don't do it every single year, but maybe we're starting to. <laughs> it's just sort of a... It's kind of how my parents get me to go to Orlando at this point uh, because they they love theme parks so very much and uh, I've gone to them kind of my whole life and I, I find them fun in some ways but also <sighs> exhausting on a sort of corporate level <laughs> at other times and also, uh, you know, they really do cater pretty 
insanely hardcore to you know middle class white people with money uh and sometimes that gets really exhausting so the halloween stuff it's a little bit easier to ignore because i have all kinds of things uh you know sort of vying for my attention uh in that you know it's michael myers actually trying to stab me and things like that so it, it takes yeah. my mind Love off it. of that that other stuff finally danielle when you said it was when you said the word it's becoming a family tradition i'm watching a video i'm watching 2017 halloween horror nights 27 at universal studios florida uh from i theme park on youtube and Good. literally at a minute oh three which is where i was when you said the phrase a family tradition uh there was like a roadwork sign that said an american tradition and i was like oh weird and then it changed and it said uh united we purge <laughs> yeah. like, oh, okay, right. an there was bidding. a purge house this year there was, a purge, there was house. a purge house i went to the purge house i just saw the I went purge. to every house but Me the stranger too. things house yeah, I know. Wow, it's a coincidence that I just watched The Purge too. Maybe listeners and, so and fans should maybe watch the first Purge movie for oh, some. Oh, there's so many people in, dying. In a purge. No, what do we think of The Purge? <laughs> Good. Well, there's a lot of jokes like that. I wanted to talk to you about a couple of the houses that I found really cool, and I wanted to talk a little bit about. Uh, so there's this really awesome dynamic that I enjoy so much about this event every year, and I've been to four or five of them, I think, at this point. So I'm, I'm starting to get like a sense of kind of what goes on here. There are original content houses, which are, they made something up. There was a really cool house this year called Slaughterhouse Cinema, with an S instead of a C, which was uh, the entire point of it, the whole sort of idea of it, was it is uh, a bunch of grindhouse movies at like a shitty drive-in movie theater. And so these were all vignettes. It would start, each room would have like a movie poster for this fake movie. There was one called uh, Amazon Cannibals from Planet Hell. There was one called Devil Dogs. There was one called Shitty's Kids with S-C-H-I-T-T-I-E. And that was like a murder at a Chuck E. Cheese, basically. Okay. No, but I need to know. What, All different, kids like, were they? Shitty's Kids. I, I keep I'll hearing it. Picture. I keep hearing Shitty's, Shitty's kids. kids. Shitty's Kids. Okay. I think that's what it was. S-H-I-T-T-Y? Exactly. Shitty. S-C-H-I-T-T-Y. Okay. Um, just really, really awesome. Like little, each room was just its own vignette of like a fake Grindhouse movie. So much fun. Slasher movies, terrible sci-fi movie like Amazon Cannibals from Planet Hell, which, of course, I remember that one very well, uh, which started out as, like, you're walking through a crashed spaceship, then you were in a cave, and there were the Amazon Cannibals and, like, bathing, you know, like, six-foot-tall women in bathing suits and, like, sort of banshee masks, you know, kind of, like, killing men, and then there were bodies everywhere. Really cool stuff, right? (laughs) Uh, So those are the original content houses. There was another one called Scary Tales, which is sort of a fairy tale interpretation that had just incredible elaborate staging. You started in walking through, you kind of got some voiceover of like the plot, which was, you know, of course, a wicked witch has, has cast a spell on all your favorite fairy tales and now they're evil and they're going to kill you. And you walk through that and then there's this beautiful elaborate stage. It actually looks like a castle, really, really tall. And there's a witch, you know, scare actor and she actually sort of flies over you. They had like a, a whole wire set up. So really elaborate, really cool stuff. So there are these original content houses, and then there are these interpretations of very popular horror properties. Stranger Things was one of them. Halloween 4 was one of them. Trick or Treat was one of them. That was a movie from, I want to say, like 2016? A fairly recent uh, horror movie. And one of my favorites was Poltergeist. Mm. There was a really amazing Poltergeist house. I love Poltergeist. All-time great. It was so, so good. Uh, And I don't want to, like, spoil the specific visuals. Because, what? you know. No, pro. Just in case. No, Danielle, keep no, going. Go Patrick and I are getting beef later. Pa- Danielle, do you think Poltergeist is that good? 
It has honestly been so long since I saw it that I don't feel comfortable giving an answer. Right. How was the house, though? Um, the house just... was awesome. <laughs> Danielle, as a fan of immersive Sims, does do things like this really speak to you on a different level? This is me trying to yes. avoid the Rob Patrick beef. Yes, they do. Can you talk about that a little bit, maybe? Because like, yes, we I can. explore a lot of spaces in video games, but, you know, this is not the, this is for real. You're in a space. Patrick, I just need you to hold it together for another, like, 45 minutes. <laughs> okay. Hey, you should go to the house, Patrick. It's really good. It's really cool. You see a lot of cool visuals from the movie. Okay. One of the aspects of this, of course, that I love the most is exactly what you're getting at, which is that this is so much of this is basically game design. Mm -hmm. uh, it's It sort of splits the difference between game design and, of course, interactive theater and movies, especially where it's, uh, you know, um, taking off of a popular property sure. or a popular movie or something where it's like, oh, some of those specific visuals will be incorporated. And I think the creativity that goes into making these things is like unbelievably cool and really interesting in the same way a lot of game design aspects are unbelievably cool and really interesting they actually do 3d models of all the houses before they build them before they actually build the sets or build the props or you know create the masks and the costumes and things like that and there was actually a lot of puppetry uh in in this year's show which was really really cool there isn't always a lot of that but there were a few like amazing examples of puppetry in the sort of like the monster design not like animatronic what they were doing but like like actual puppets that huh. a human being was manipulating, which I think is way cooler. They don't use a ton of those in this. They don't use a ton of audio animatronics. It's mostly actors in makeup and costume. So, do you get a lot of time to like? Are these ones like a like? I've been in a bunch of haunted houses, but you're, it's sort of a sprint. You know, you're just like going from thing to thing. There's people behind you. You know, you're just going to whatever the next jump scare is. Do you get? Because I know part of your, you know, uh, the appeal for you with Immersive Sims, part of the uh, appeal for, it sounds like for these, is like a chance to like take in the stuff that around you. So like, how, what's the what's the pace of like these, yeah. like these setups? How much time do you get a chance to like actually enjoy and appreciate the thing that's around you? That's the part that is a little frustrating. They are trying to get you through relatively quickly. I always try to kind of slow it down a little bit, let people go in front of me. Because I've, I've been to so many of these that I kind of know th these are on a loop. There's like a soundtrack going on, basically. And scare actors are, I know I keep using this term. It's a term that they use and it's good and cute. I know it's like a marketing term, but um, they are sort of set to a specific timing. So I'm always like trying to hang back a little bit so I get the full effect and I'm not just behind somebody who's already sort of screaming and you know spoiling a little bit of the fun um, my mom has like a little bit of a mobility issue so she walks really slowly so a lot of times I'm just sort of like holding her hand or like kind of have my arm around her and we're, we're sort of walking through together very slowly occasionally you know the folks that work there are like trying to kind of get you to keep going and I'm always like it's fine we're good like we're still moving it's cool. You kind of learn those little tricks a little bit. Uh, some of them are longer than others, but it usually is like a solid five to ten minutes going through a lot of these, especially if you're not, you know, really trying to rush your way through, if you are trying to savor things a little bit. And I do right. typically go a couple of days. Like, I went three days in a row to this event, so I saw several of these houses two times sometimes i go three times if i really love something and you do see a little bit more of the detail each time especially uh that slaughterhouse cinema house that i mentioned um i ended up going through a second time and taking like a picture of each one of the posters so i would remember you know what this goofy fucking fake movie was you know for the next time through which was pretty fun did these houses hold up to because that was something i was curious about like Talking about the parallel to game design, like to me, a, a thing like this is always is sort of a bit like a ride, right? Where like you're on rails, and most people are only going to go through it once. 
right? They're only going to like see whatever is the main thing they want you to look at. And it is cool how amusement parks like direct your attention and control your eyeline. I mean, I've only been to uh, Disneyland. I went for the first time like in 2016, and that's kind of like the the urtext of amusement parks in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yes. I am kind of curious, like, did these reward repeated experiences? Like, as like after you'd seen the big scare they were trying to pull off, the big effect, were there details that like paid off for you and like enriched the experience the way games Ooh. sometimes do? Absolutely, yeah. Like, I'll, I'll give an example. There was one house called Patient Zero, uh, which was sort of a, uh, starts as like, oh, a medical emergency has occurred. And of course, it's a zombie apocalypse. And there is actually a plot element through all of these, which is really awesome and does very much reward sort of going through once or twice, or sorry, tw two or even three times if you can, if you can kind of manage that. Uh, because you will pick up not only more details, but you also pick up more of like the plot that it's actually trying to get you to go through. Uh, so this Patient Zero... Uh, house starts out with in like a medical tent and I was with my sister and we were kind of joking like oh Celeste it's your job because she works at a medical nonprofit that provides relief in uh, uh, conflict areas so it's like it's medical tent and it's like oh no there's nobody in here you see like a body you see like a few details and that's a little bit of stage setting and they make you kind of go through two by two and and there's like a fog effect that's like oh this is the quarantine zone and then you're kind of moving through the space uh, and you go into a subway and you realize it's it's the Paris subway and there's a lot of lighting effects and you start to see there's a use of mirrors, there's a use of actors, there's a use of all sorts of things. Now, the first time through, they use a lot of darkness in this particular house. Like, there are moments of pure black darkness and, you know, they, there's a tiny, tiny bit of light on, like, the floor that's just, like, you gotta just walk this way kind of thing but there's a lot of darkness so the first time through i missed a lot of the details of like oh this is paris okay this makes sense like there's actually a subway map that is the parisian subway map that is like flashed on and off and flashed on and off and it's like oh that adds a little bit of context here uh details like that you definitely see on the second and third time and they are such richly detailed houses with so many elements of, of just the props used the set design the lighting uh, it's really, really, really incredible to kind of go through a second time and be like, oh, I missed that. Oh, I missed that. I missed that. I missed that. And I missed this. And this all kind of added to it for me. I think the other thing I was kind of wondering about is that, so like you spent most of your time talking about original, like scare, scare environments, haunted houses and stuff like that. And like, I am curious for you, how, like, what was more interesting? What was more powerful for you? Was it sort of what it, like was it the houses trying to channel familiar films and like their tone and texture or did you get more out of the novelty of like the stuff that was off-brand is the wrong word but like original that was that was new yeah I, I tend to enjoy the new ones uh well i enjoy them for different reasons the interpretations are so much fun because you're looking at how they're interpreting something that you already know, right? The Halloween 4 house was a great example because it was like the plot of the movie. You're moving through all these spaces that kind of go through Halloween the sort of general. Four. Yeah. There's Is that not whole... a good one? You're going through closets. It's you're going through... It's just a weird, like... This is one of those. The movies have a formula. Do they always do Halloween just, 4? He, or other years do they do different Halloweens? No, but I have been in a Halloween house before. There was a Halloween... Uh, I think 2016 there was another Halloween house. Maybe 2012. I, they... They definitely always do like four or five interpretations of properties in the Universal catalog, mm, usually okay. tied to, okay, there's a new 
like this is obviously Stranger Things, right? Is like yeah. that's and it's just it's just struck me as like yeah. if that's true, that makes sense because then it gives them like a different layout to work with yes. and a different like structure to the story. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just like why Halloween four? Yep. <laughs> like, just, like, just pluck it out of a hat like, in the catalog. Well, it's Final Destination <laughs> yeah, exactly. twelve this time. Sorry, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> There it is. I remember there was a Thing House in 2012. It was oh, one of my favorites. Oh, that sounds great. Oh, my God. It was incredible. What? Do it was the tied thing? to, like, the new thing. Because there was a new... But was it? There was a Thing oh, that movie. But it was a John Carpenter's The Thing A not thing great Thing movie. Yes. Oh, John Carpenter's shit. The Thing. It was incredible. It was the first... It was actually the very first Halloween Horror Nights house Were I've ever like, been in Were they, like, freak your life. shit out animatronics for that one? Oh, yes. The better have been. Like puppet, uh, puppet things, things? Yeah. <laughs> like running, you know, jumping up out of bodies. Man. Oh my god, it was amazing. Uh, but yeah, like, um, I I really enjoy going to the you know the interpretations to see what they thought was important and like that's fun. That's fun in its own way of seeing like, oh, okay, this is this is how they decided to stage this or or how they decided to kind of put this in. But the original content ones are really, really fun because they can just go hog wild. They can really just go nuts. They can really just kind of have fun with a with any concept. There was one that was called Seeds of Extinction, which was basically felt like The Last of Us, huh. only with alien plant life instead of just, you know, clickers. But a lot of the scare actors looked exactly like clickers. They were like mushroom people or plant people. Uh, and had a whole plot about like Oh, there was a meteorite that fell, and on day one, half of life was extinct on Earth, and then you go through, and, and it all looks very overgrown and lush and terrifying and gross. It was awesome. So, yeah, they can they can have a lot of fun uh, with this, this sort of, like, oh, we just made this up, and I can only imagine what the pitch meetings are like for this kind of thing, right? Like, I always, I've always wanted to do – they have a behind-the-scenes tour that actually – you know, goes into a couple of the houses and says like, oh, we were thinking of this and this is how we came up with this staging or this effect or this costume. And I've always wanted to be like, please, I want to know everything. How did you come up with all of this? It's so cool. So, yeah. All right. Well, uh, that sounds pr- like a pretty great reason to go to Orlando, Florida. Uh, <laughs> perhaps the first one I've heard in my life. The, that's where you can find one this of one? the very best and only. <laughs> I can't find this one on my podcast app. I mean, you look, you can probably, like, find someone willing to scare you. I mean, yeah, like that, true. you can probably just go to Craigslist. Uh, but... Donald Trump is president. <laughs> Are you scared? Yeah, always. <laughs> uh, speaking of, like, terrifying fates. Uh... Back to Ikaru. <laughs> <laughs> Serial podcast season three, the American justice system. Uh, no, we're we're actually going to be talking about something that's potentially worse than all of those. Uh, oh no! And Patrick, this this may sound rich uh, coming from me, mm, yes. But get a load of this Cleveland Browns memoir you shared oh with us God. this week. Oh, yeah, it's a a piece uh, called uh, "Hopelessly Devoted" by Mark Sessler over at NFL.com. He's a uh, lifelong Cleveland Browns fan. It's this long memoir essay about his d- devoted fandom to a franchise that has had nothing but nightmarish heartbreak uh, and loss and just terrible play for his entire life. And it's just sort of like mixed in with like the ups and downs of his own life and just sort of explaining like why he's never given up along the way or justifying or trying to justify why he's never given up uh, along the way. It's a really interesting piece about fandom um and it got me to start reflecting on just like just the irrationality of like sports fandom like it's just such a 
it doesn't make any sense sense yeah. um, at all. Um, <laughs> like it has nothing to do with the the beauty of the game, right? Like it's not like oh, an appreciation for the form and skill of playing whatever sport. Like in this case, it's the Cleveland Browns and football. Um, you could apply that to any sorts of uh, a fandom that you have, particular team. Like you are just putting your faith and your your interest and your hopes and dreams into a, a group of, of players that um, you have a specific rooting interest in them being successful as opposed to just appreciating the form and success. And I can maybe think back on my own history with the Bears, who uh, I have, uh, they are my home team. You know, I grew up in the Chicagoland area, and then I have our own personal history with the team and the sport of right. football because my father was... Started out as a salesperson for Riddell Sports. They you are you are familiar, even if you aren't familiar with Riddell, because yeah. they are the logo on the back of like predominantly a lot of the athletics equipment that was at your local high school. Um, it was for a long time. They closed the logo, but it used to be a big red Riddell logo on the back of um, all the NFL uh, helmets. And so I had a Riddell helmet. Yeah, and uh, so my dad worked his way up through the chain at Riddell and. Uh, Towards the end, before he he passed uh, a number of years back, he was VP something something. He basically shadow ran Riddell Sports. He always turned down an opportunity to become the president uh. of the company because presidents of the company get ousted when the company has like a bad cycle that may be completely outside of their control. But that's just the way corporations churn. So he always stayed one or two steps below the rung, where he was essentially shadow running the company. Um, but didn't actually get hit with like getting ousted because investors or whatever were, were upset the particular cycle. And that was so, an era when getting fired as an executive might actually be a bad thing as opposed to a way to get richer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was, yeah, there were th- these people getting ousted were not getting golden parachutes. I mean, they're probably going to be an executive, else, you know, yeah. at Reebok or something like that. But uh, my dad loved that company. And, and, um, and so growing up, um, I had no affinity for. Sports in particular, my parents uh, had me playing basketball and baseball, um, not football because my dad didn't think it was safe, despite the fact that it was like funding a lot <laughs> of the stuff that our family did. Sure. Um, and uh, damning uh, verdict from like the like executive in <laughs> a helmet manufacturer, like not my not my sweet baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as a result, like my dad had like a close uh, because he was a salesperson, a regional salesperson before he like worked up his way on the sort of executive level. Um, knew the Chicago Bears, the McCaskey family, uh, who owns the Chicago Bears, like really, really well. I mean, one of the McCaskies like came to my dad's like funeral. Like that's how close like they revered my dad in some ways. And so when I was young, I didn't take an interest in sports. And thus didn't have a fandom for the Chicago Bears, despite them being, quote unquote, my team or my family's team, because I did the thing that every shitty kid does, which is like reject the things that their parents are interested in and want you to be interested in, because that's what spiteful little shits do. And I look forward to that arc of having a child. Um, and I look back on on that where like, so, for example, um, uh, one time and I resented at the time I didn't enjoy doing this. Every time I tell this story, it uh, they don't let you do this anymore, but I was uh, able to, uh, when they kick the field goals after you score a touchdown, like there are people that like pull up the ropes to yeah. get the net up. Like I was that kid for a Chicago Aww. Bears game and like pouted the entire time. <laughs> like didn't want to be there, didn't want to do it. I was on the sidelines of games. I hung out in the locker room like in like the 90s and 
like would get smuggled into the locker room because my dad didn't want to get actual access like verified Ooh. access and so they would just put me on the laundry truck because he knew the guy that did <laughs> all the equipment stuff because that's right. who he was dealing with was the equipment manager did you meet teams. jim miller um I don't know. Like I couldn't. I couldn't tell you. Like I made no notes of that era because again, I pouted most of the time that oh. I was there and being forced it to was go. Like, you didn't and, like, want to go to church, that. except that church was the Chicago Bears. Yes, like the Chicago Bears yeah. locker room and free access to like any game I ever wanted to go to. Um, and they weren't a good, particularly good team at the time. But they weren't still, the Browns, like, though. They weren't the Browns. Um, and uh, and so then it was later in life when I met my wife who was like a hardcore Chicago Bears fan and then uh we started dating um prior to to my dad passing and then when she found out like the sort of access we could get to things uh was horrified and upset and then um I still didn't really care about football in any meaningful way but then when she we moved in together and then on Sundays she would go to uh I'd be like I'm gonna play a video game like I'm not watching this fucking football game with you and she'd go around the corner to the local bar and come back you know three quarters drunk and I'm like what happened she's like they won and then she'd pass out for like two hours and then we'd go get dinner um and i was like i'm tired of like my wife just like going to the bar without me like every sunday not because i don't trust her but i was just like i'd like t- i should go take an interest in this thing that she's spending all day sunday doing <laughs> and then as a result became like very invested um became like very uh devoted for whatever that means and have like since then um like n- not only am a fan of the, the the bears but like deeply invested in a lot of narratives and the football as a sport um but like, and so a lot of this essay like really spoke to me in terms of again like in terms of fandom i can only speak to like the last 10 years or so but in terms of like having a personal narrative with a team that is intertwined mm-hmm. in your life like i can deeply identify with that because the chicago bears even when i wasn't uh a fan like I was part of that culture and like part of that team due to the regional factors and due to like personal factors. And um, I know on this podcast, we've talked about like our own sort of fandoms. Like I know Danielle, you have alluded to like, I guess you root for the Patriots. Um, I, I and don't. Wow. So here, so what it's I wanted to do was like, so, so that what I wanted to, so at, all that out of the way, like that was my takeaway from that essay. Which again, I was curious that to, like, essay ask is all of you. devoted for 32 yeah. years by Mark Sessler. Uh, uh, over on NFL.com, which is about yes. spending 40 years really, really being heartbroken. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, it's a, yeah. And uh, so I was curious, I wanted to kind of just go around the table as we sort of close up this podcast. Like, we've talked about our fans, you know, Rob and I are Chicago Bears, uh, Dawson, you are the Philadelphia yep. Eagles, and uh, Danielle, you sound like you have, uh, tell, explain to me, <laughs> you and the New England Patriots. All right. When you grow up in New England, there's one city for six states, okay? Like, that's it. There's one right. city. Rob, you know this. Hartford. Pittsfield. <laughs> Pittsfield, Massachusetts, Thank baby. you, Austin. That's uh, what it is. Boom. Providence, Rhode Island. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, New England, and it is a baseball region. It is a football region. Basketball, hockey, super important. I don't want to, like, say they're not super important. Hockey, probably more than a lot of other places in America. Very, very important. Basketball, still very, very important. However, football and baseball are America in New England. Yeah, right? (laughs) So you grow up, and it's religion. It is just like Catholicism. It's just everywhere you go. The church on the corner, 
has the Patriots gear, the church on the other corner all has the Celtics gear. Like everybody, you, you grow up, you have a little baseball hat. It's a Boston sports team. It is just religion where I grew up. So whether you are agnostic or atheist or not practicing <laughs> that religion, it's still in the like fabric and the culture of all the people you're related to and have to spend holidays with and things like that. So every Thanksgiving, I'm definitely going to at least know how the Patriots did. How's Tommy I didn't doing? Seek it out. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> that's the thing that makes it rough is like, okay, there's no team that's like all the way great. Yeah. There, there, there's no such thing as not being complicit. Like the NFL is terrible, right? The NFL is a bad thing. They do bad things. It's a bad corporation. However, you can still love a team. You can still care about a team. You can still care about how your local team is doing or whatever you have a fandom for, right? Tom Brady sucks. I will never Hell not yeah. say that Tom Brady does not suck because he's terrible and bad and he likes Trump and I don't get it. However, I can't – it's hard. It's really uh -huh. hard. I can't, like, denounce the Patriots because it says, like, it feels sacrilegious to say, like, die Patriots. You know what There's I'm saying? Like, it's like, die. There's I just Faulkner want them to quote. lose. <laughs> There's that Faulkner quote I think a lot about where, like, you know, where in the heart of every Southern boy, it's always uh, noon on July 3rd at Gettysburg and the brigades are lined up. Oh. I think, it, like, in New England, it is always the final two minutes – of a conference playoff game and Brady's under center, right? Like, to a degree, like, yeah. even if you hate this, like, even if you're cynical about this fucking team and, this fu and, and what Patriots fandom is, it's hard not to be like, oh, Patriots are down down seven, down four, you know. That means minute 50 15, left to play. honestly, yeah. Brady, yeah, it's like, okay. <laughs> it's like you have to care on some level. Sometimes it's just easier to be like, you know what, I like the Bruins, okay? <laughs> I like the Bruins, <laughs> They're all right. Has anybody done anything horribly racist on the Bruins lately? Okay, good. If they haven't, great. Love those Rob's Bruins. Rob's disappeared. Rob has vanished. Oh, no. Like, Actually, honestly, on the Bruins, sports fandom, on the Bruins might be okay. Yes. Bruins okay. fandom. Bruins yeah, fandom. Boston. That's the thing. Like, New England fans are awful. Like, I, I have no complications saying, like, New England sports fandom is horrible and has a lot of problems in it. It is just, like, one of those things. You are, you are born into this religion, and you can choose another religion, but you're always going to kind of wonder how, you know, Father Mickey is yep. doing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, it's... It is a bit like Catholicism. Can't help like, it. every single member of my family is lapsed Catholic. At the same time, like... There's a lot of guilt yeah. involved. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, at the yeah. same time, like, if it ever came down to, like, okay, but what do you believe in? Chips chips are down. What is your faith? It'd be like, well, I got, I need to get confirmed, don't I? Shit. Like, that's that's kind of how it goes. <laughs> that's what it is. Uh, you know, I was, this essay hit me in a weird place. Because, like, I resent my Bears fandom. Like, I kind of <laughs> sure. went off on my yeah. dad the other, the other week. He was talking about, um... He was like, boy, those Packers fans are assholes. They're so, they're so quick to turn on their team. They start booing if they have a bad half and all that. Like, you're booing Aaron Rodgers. You're booing, you're booing the Packers. They're such a good team. They've given you so, like, they've been such a great franchise. And, like, one bad chord and you guys all turned a bunch of ungrateful assholes. And I sort of had this moment where I was like, you know what? No, they're right. Fuck a bad team. Fuck them. Like, you know, maybe if the Bear, if Bears fandom wasn't this, like, self-defeating like kicked dog like shitty like culture 
of, well, just support yep. the team. Like, it's almost good that they're bad because then you know you're a real fan. You're not you're not some bandwagoner. <laughs> you're just cheering for a team that gets fucking I've told ass myself that before. Like, <laughs> when I watch bad games to the end, I've yes. told myself, that, like, if I, I, mean, if I actually is... care about, like, where this team's going, I'm going to look at the linebacker core and I can appreciate, like, some good defensive line play even in this loss. I mean, <laughs> this, is, this is, like, what this dude in the story does week after week after week. Yeah. Like, I, when I say it's 40 years, like, I, I, I just want to emphasize... I know this intimately as my father is a Cleveland Browns fan, despite being from North Jersey. Like, I've seen the struggle. I have seen the pain. And I want to – I know that lots of people who listen to us don't give a fuck about sports. And so just, like, imagine there is something you care deeply about in your life that might be – imagine you're a – Democratic Party. No. Because Sonic the Hedgehog. Sonic the Hedgehog. Sonic. You can influence the Democratic Party. Party. Democratic Party. That's the important thing. Right, yeah. I think it's, like, Sonic the Hedgehog or – uh, film like maybe you love okay let's say it's say it's anime or or horror film or something a genre film a genre of of entertainment or or pop music or hey 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 oh how about this what about the, the transformers, transformers movie? let's say you oh, like transformers you where people people love yes. transformers and you show up to each of the new Michael you Bay shit fests, knowing it's bad, but because your fandom is like, well, maybe this one's good. And you know what? Like, oh, like the design you know, of Optimus, that one line like, he did, yeah. you pull out. And then you, I think that's actually yes. a good you do analogy. It for 40 years, the drive, which I want to explain, like, there were two consecutive years in, in 1986 and 1987 that are, like, touched on here. Um, but are not necessarily given a lot of room to breathe in this guy's essay. In 1986, the Cleveland Browns were like poised to win the AFC Championship, go to the Super. They're poised to go to the Super Bowl. They're going to beat the Denver Broncos. They were. They had them down to. They were, it was like a, a 20 to 13 lead or something like that. Um, and. Kicked off the ball and and the the Broncos had it at like the two yard line, like their own two yard line, which means they had to go ninety eight yards to score, and then he does it. And it's just like it's one of those Tom Brady esque drives, right? It's that style of contemporary football drive where he does it, and the Cleveland Browns lose. And this is a good Cleveland Browns team; they could have gone on to win that Super Bowl. And then the next year against the same team, they well, and it's specifically like it, the, the 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 destruction was so. It's been given right. a term. It's called, like, it's the, called drive. the drive. The next year was the fumble. And that was, they were down by, I want to say they were down by six points or something like that. Actually, they went into the half, came into halftime down 21 to three, did this incredible comeback, had brought it back to 38 to 31 with like five or six minutes left, and then drove it down, were ready to score, ready to, again, we're going to go to the Super Bowl. And then they, they didn't. They fumbled, uh, a Biner fumbles the ball. And the, the the Broncos get it back, and it ends the drive, and the game ends, and they don't go to the Super Bowl. And that was in 1987. I was three years old. I was two years old. <laughs> My father has been suffering <laughs> since then. Oh. Every fall, this is the year. This is I, I hear him every every. It's it's draft season. Maybe we're going to get some good draft picks this year. It's trust the process. But the process has been so long that the team, the Cleveland Browns, disintegrated for three years and had to come back. They they, they moved, moved to Baltimore. They went to won Baltimore. Super Bowl, but the fans didn't come with them because it felt like a betrayal of the city. So they didn't even get that. So it's like. There's a material thing. It's like, what if a new Transformers movie came out 
every week in the in the fall, every fall, oh. and each one was like maybe you got like a couple of good mo- like like Patrick said a couple of good moments here or there, but you never get it, and so you care so deeply for the thing. In, in a way that is irrational, in a way that is deeply human and deeply, like, emotional, and you're, you're tying your, your – your, you're jumping on this horse. This is my horse. I care about this horse. And there's just a lot of time to lose uh, compared to someone the like – the horse died 10 years The Patriots, ago. right? Yeah. Who, like, if you were born in the year 2000, you didn't know a time when the Patriots weren't winning, weren't in the playoffs pretty consecutively. Like, you're like a years, football baby boomer. Right, 100%. You just <laughs> yep. post-war, post-war Patriot. You know, oh you just like, oh, it's, it's raining me. You know, like I am entitled to this. Which is why last year when the Eagles won, when the Eagles slew their nemesis, when when the Eagles <laughs> uh, got their first Super Bowl win, it was such an uh, like a, an emotional moment for me. Was because I'd done this investment over time in this team, and I hadn't followed very closely for a few years now. Right, like I, I have such a mixed relationship with the NFL, but there was something about that early. I had the opposite the opposite experience of, of Patrick, right? Like I was going to Eagles practices as a kid. I have like signed Randall Cunningham sports illustrated. You know what I mean? Like I, I was devoted. I watched every game that I could. I was like a hundred percent, like I'm going to become a football player. Like, um, and, and that fell away as I started in, in like 2010, 2011, I stopped watching as many games when the CTE stuff started like becoming very clear to me, yep. um, which is even before the last couple of years of, of the, of the Kaepernick stuff. Right. Um, and so, uh, but even so, like when that hit, uh, it was unlike any other experience I had because all of that investment felt like it paid off in a way that, again, completely irrational. I know you're listening to this and you're thinking, uh, but like, here's the, the Transformers is a really good one. I just, I'm someone who's been like an on again, off again, Transformers fan my whole life too. I like I like big robots. I like mechs more than robots, but I still like the Transformers. Did you see what those fucking robots look like in this new Transformers movie? Oh, Bumblebee is the Baker they Mayfield. They look so of... good. They look <laughs> it's G1, it's all baby. G1 Transformers. They all look like the original cartoon Transformers instead of looking like the weird, like, postmodern monstrosities of, of the Michael Bay films. And it, there was, I had yeah. that same feeling of like, oh, wow, I didn't, I thought, I'd forgotten I invested this part of myself in this thing and it's paying off. And that movie might be trash still. Who could say? It's from. It's coming from the guy who did the, the Kubo okay. and like these some of those other stuff. Kubo was cool. Yeah, like no, it should be it. It should be good. It it should be better. But again, that's that's it, right? Like there it, is. Oh, it should be good. This this, it could long. be better. This is the right? Well, hey, sometimes you get Sonic, sometimes Mania. You get Sonic Mania. You're right. Sonic is a right? really great it's, one. Yeah, Sonic. Never... Sonic has a thing called the Sonic Cycle. True. <laughs> you get excited. You forget the bad. I mean, like. Yeah, Sonic is actually also a great one. Yeah, because you can just do Google search the Sonic cycle. Like, there is an emotional cycle associated. You know, like, in the rest of our... But but then then what is the Patriots in these other things, right? What is the thing? And why is it... Like, okay. In media, if there was a TV show as consistent and good as the Patriots have been in the last 20 years, I wouldn't hate... Breaking Bad? Is it really 20 years? Because I remember the Bledsoe years being... Oh, those yeah, are those also are good. good. <laughs> I also went to Patriots practice during See? those years. Bledsoe I don't know years. If it's a television Look, it was before show Tom like, Brady. Yeah. Okay, it was Bledsoe. Right. Yeah, Drew Bledsoe was right. Right, right, I liked right. those Patriots. Like, yeah. Is that like what ninety nine, ninety eight? Brady is yeah, more like two thousand four. No, he started in two thousand. No, he was before that. Well, I mean, in terms yeah. of like him actually being. The, you know, who he Mr. is. Team leader. Uh, so yeah, they won Super Bowls in 2001, 2003, 2004, 2014, 2016, and they were in the playoffs in 
So All of those 86, years, there's a break. One, right? And then 94, 96, 97, 98, 2001, 2003, 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007, 2009. So skip 2008, 2010 through now. So. What happened in 2008? Was that where he tore his ACL? Yeah. I'm just looking at a list. Uh, the, I think the Colts, the Colts fucked him up. But anyway, my point is, if there was that in yeah. film mm-hmm. or in... I mean, I, I, there is it does exist in film. There are directors. They're all-time great directors. I'm like, man, they just keep – whoever the – Steven Spielberg might be the Tom Brady of, of film or something, right? Yes. Um, people are like, yeah. mm, I'm not sure. I don't know. But if there was that person, I might be discontent with some of like – or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm actually – what I'm actually saying is like, oh, this is why I don't like, you know, mainstream pop music or something, which, I, which I'm fine with. But – I mean, is there Marvel something might like be the that? Patriots of film? Oh, right? Marvel's like just a, current just a yeah. juggernaut that like next man up, next franchise up, right. everything's replaceable. Yeah, like it could I, that's, be that. Yeah, but you know what I'm saying, right? It's like this attitude. There is something about the level of investment I put into things like the Eagles that I did a long time ago, that I put into other things a long time ago that I've given. So I used to have a shirt that said, John Mayer is the mayor of bad music because I was an asshole. Uh, because I was at like 21. It's not a bad shirt though. Well, it is it's a bad a good shirt, shirt. But it's not a bad sentiment. It's, uh, I think it is. Fuck. Now, now would be a good bumper <laughs> yeah. sticker. Yeah. Put on your laptop. Like I was an asshole. Like who cares? And so when I see John Mayer now, all that investment I put in that style of Austin Walker elite music lover, like, is just boom, yeah. compl- I'm on completely dispersed, right? Like, I don't care if I see someone who I, I don't have that hatred anymore in my heart, except for Tom Brady. And I think it's because a lot of it does come down to, like, well, why do the Cleveland Browns have to lose for, for since 1951, you know? Also, villains yeah. are fun, right? Like, as much as I despise the Patriots, like, when this era oh, is yeah. over, inevitably, like... It's going to suck to not have someone. It's fun to root I'm going to start rooting for the Patriots. In 15 years, when they've lost for eight years in a row, I'll give them a win. (laughs) I look forward to that. I mean, this is why, like, I was so praying for a King Lear-esque denouement to the Brady and (laughs) Belichick era, where it's like like Brady's going fucking behind uh, Belichick's back to, like, trade Jimmy Garoppolo. and, 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 like, no, the kingdom... The kingdom should not fall to it should fall to the chosen. It should fall to me. Oh. Uh, like I am really hoping for that all to play out, but I'll be sad once it's over, right? I'll be like, damn, like now who am I gonna hate? And the, yeah, it can't yeah. just be the system. Like it can't just be the NFL. You can't just hate the how do you right. hate a shield the way you hate Bill Belichick's <laughs> arrogant fucking face. I, there are some there are some hateable people of the NFL ownership and and uh, and an executive, uh, but they're not they're not as personified for sure. Uh, just my my advice though, uh, and this is maybe most relevant to Patrick: do not let your babies grow up to be Browns or Bears fans. <laughs> but you could be the Eagles of this year. This See. is the thing. You could be me. There uh, there was uh, I should go and find it. Um, there was a podcast series. It's from a couple of years back um, in which – so it's like, you know, for all of us, like our fandom is yeah. like regional, right? It's like where you grew up. Like it was what was around you. Um, and there was a podcast. I can't remember. Maybe uh, maybe it was Grantland. Maybe it was somewhere else. But someone wanted to pick a team. And right. they hadn't picked a team. 
And so they did a podcast series about picking a team and like going through a whole pro- bringing on experts, people pitching right. different teams and doing a ranking and figuring out like, well, you can't pick like the best team. Like you have to pick like a team on the bubble that like, you know, it was a yep. really fascinating series like to because so much of our fandom is built in like is where we grew up like it wasn't it was thrust upon us it was not not chosen and so the idea of choosing a team to root for and which actually happens here in this the 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 essay um hope was devoted like marcessler did not um like he, he chose the cleveland browns even though his family uh, rooted for what was it the Bills or something like that I can't huh. remember but like he chose the, the Browns because he got pitched on them. his family were Giants oh, yeah, fans yeah. Yeah, the Giants yeah, yeah. yes yeah yeah and a, a friend in school pitched him on the Browns and he just got on that bandwagon um, and so I'll, I'll I will tweet about it later after this podcast comes out I will go and look up that that series because it was just really interesting to watch someone do the mental exercise of picking a team because it's just so different than the way all sports fandom or most sports fandom that works is kind of it's fun when I was. Lie. I kind of in, want to in do my that. teen years when I was like 14 15 post Michael Jordan era like I grew up as a Chicago Bulls fan mm-hmm. because I was like I was like whatever Hell, yeah exactly I was a, a, a baby <laughs> when Michael Jordan grew into his prime and like I, oh that's what being good looks like so I'm going to root for him and then like after that I was like well I don't want to become a a, a 76ers fan cuz you know, South Jersey's Philly teams basically North Jersey's New York teams um and I just like nothing about the Sixers really appealed I liked Allen Iverson enough but like it wasn't I wasn't moved. Um, and I ended up like doing the thing. I was like, I tried out a bunch of teams one year. I watched, a, I watched sports center every day. I watched a bunch of NBA games at night. And eventually I came in as a fan. This is like, I think it's, it supports a lot of how I like things in general of the Sacramento Kings who were in the one. I've never been to Sacramento. I didn't know where Sacramento was. Are you kidding me? I knew California. I didn't know. I thought there were, I thought it was like, I knew it was Northern California, but I didn't know what that meant, really. Um, I still probably thought right. it was south of San Francisco, which is wrong. Uh, <laughs> I never looked it up on a map. What's that? Who cares? What I care about is that they're fun to watch. And this is like the era of like Jason Williams and Chris Weber and Divock and like that – they moved the ball around mm-hmm. in a really interesting, fun way. They like had plays that were, that were like fun to watch develop. They like t- – tapped into the part of my brain that liked to understand how games functioned. Um, right. And it's why I'm still like, despite the fact that I know better root for the Golden State Warriors, because it's like, I like how they play the game. I like seeing them decimate a defense. Yeah. And I know that that makes me a bandwagon jumper. And I'm not, I'm not out here buying jerseys. I'm not out here like cheering for them on Twitter. Even like I do my best to be a little more indifferent on Twitter. Uh, I think everyone has, it should have a, a fun experience watching games. Uh, but, but uh, I, I, that was the, the decision I made as a, as a kid. And I'm uh, that experience is really fun. It's definitely worth trying to figure out. Like uh, this also happens with soccer. If you decide to like follow the British premiership and be like, Oh, I'm going to like a soccer team. Like, all right, well, how the fuck do you decide which one to watch? Um, it's, it's, it's tough. So uh, I think that will do it for this episode of Waypoints. Our thanks to Bowen for letting us use his track. Miss you off the EP panel machine. You can keep up with all of us at waypoint.vice.com. I'm Rob Zachney, and you can find me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Uh, Danielle, where can people find you? At fuck you, Tom Brady, but maybe I still care about Boston sports in some part of my heart. At Danielle. It's a long long handle. At Danielle or I. (laughs) <laughs> gonna go right up against the character limit with that one mm-hmm. uh patrick 
<laughs> Find me at Patrick Clupping. Awesome. At Austin underscore Walker. All right. Uh, well, we hope you've enjoyed the break. We'll be back uh, very soon with... I'm not sure, actually, which... I don't want to give the game away here. Uh, I'm not sure what you're going to be hearing next from us, because we've got a few things in the wind. I'm not sure what the... Friday show, I think. I think. Yeah, Friday show this week. I think. Yes. Okay. I think. There could be a little... We'll see. The the one you're thinking of... I, is definitely I next we, week. We're, we're punting for a... Uh, we're going to record and then release it in a couple yeah. weeks. I think that's a coward's choice, but we'll discuss. <laughs> we'll discuss on the Discord afterward. Uh, yes. All right, all right. I have other reasons for holding it. All right. Short version, watch the perch. Watch the perch. Maybe give that a, a little watch. Either way, we'll be back soon uh, with another podcast. Hope you'll join us again. But until then, do not give in to astonishment. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.